Thanks for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Ben Nichols, an international sports communication specialist who has provided public relations expertise to a variety of organizations around the world, both internally and as an outside consultant. Ben's career has included work, which has spanned from Asia Pacific to the Middle East, as well as Europe and the Americas. Traversing the globe has required Ben to learn a number of cultures and their varied approaches to the media. There's no syllabus, there's no course that teaches you that. That is just vocational life experience. Ben's work has included stints within the tennis world and Formula One, as well as involvement with the Commonwealth Games, while also spending several years with WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. Quickly, when you work for WADA, you get rid of the naivety that you're going to win this battle. It is about staying ahead if you can. Doping scandals were dominating the headlines in some sports during Ben's time with WADA. There's a lesson from that era that has stayed with him. I think what I learned from that time is however fraught and challenging the situation, however tight the deadlines, however dramatic the story, from a personal point of view, keep your calm. You know, the world's not going to cave in as much as it seems at the time as you've got immense pressure. While you listen, visit credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discuss in this episode. And please take a moment to leave a review wherever you access podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with international sports communication specialist, Ben Nichols on Credentials Only. Ben, thanks for joining me. Your career experience is very diverse, but there's one common trait through all of it. It's very international in flavor. What is the appeal to you of that very international aspect? Um, Firstly, hi, Pete. Good to be joining you for the, the podcast. Uh, I'm a, an avid follower, um, so I'm, I'm really, really thrilled to be on. Um, yeah, you. I've always uh, always enjoyed, I guess, as a young boy, well pre-career, I always enjoyed traveling. Uh, I was always fortunate enough to be able to travel to different countries, certainly in Europe, close, close to the UK here. And I always got a flavor for traveling, different cultures, different languages. So I guess I had that in my blood a little bit. Um, and then, you know, certainly when I got to the stage of thinking about what to do as a career, I wanted to, initially I wanted to be a, a journalist. Maybe I made the right choice not going down that route the way the world's gone, but um, I wanted to travel and I, sport was my other passion and that gave me, I guess, a, a career opening to do that. Um, so I, I suppose in terms of the international aspect, yeah, it's always something I wanted to do. That said, you're not always fortunate enough to have those opportunities. So I, I and certainly can go into this a bit, but I knocked on lots of doors, gave up a lot of time voluntarily to work in what is quite a, um, you know, an, in, uh, an appealing profession, I guess. Um, so yeah, I wanted to um, I wanted to work in the states. I wanted to work in Australia. I wanted to work in Europe where I could use different languages and just. Um, I'm always someone that wants to take on a challenge. So um, you know, wanted to put myself outside my comfort zone, like you, and 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 get out there and do things and test myself and that you know internationally naturally that you're doing that in your resume you've been in formula one you've been in the tennis circuit um some other things we'll talk about with governing bodies even in doing that and especially with agencies and enterprises that are so international how does that work become different than if you were simply with a domestic team or a domestic league yeah, of course. I mean, I I suppose the simple answer is it's, um, yeah, you can't be complacent about anything. I think, you know, when you're working domestically and you master your um, domestic sports market, I guess. So, um, you know, in the UK, I've 
picked up a lot, but then immediately once it becomes too comfortable and um, once you think you know the way of it, it, as soon as you go to work in another country, there will be differences. So I guess the, the biggest change to me earlier in my career was I, I went to sp- spend two years in the Middle East in Dubai um, as as head of press for the Dubai Tennis Championships. Um, and it you know it's ma- massive cultural difference. Yes, it's a community with a lot of expats, a lot of Westerners, but also um, you've, you've got locals, you've got a lot of people from, from Asia, all over the world, people coming there. So there's different ways of working. And so what you think is the done or right way, yeah, no, it's not. You know, that you've got to adapt to the cultural differences. You've got to be considerate. You've got to be aware of cultural sensitivities more and more. Um, and I think that's that's the biggest uh, change, I guess, internationally for me is is just figuring out how things work in different markets and being adaptable so that you can be comfortable with one thing, but then you realize there's always better ways of working and always ways of, of learning new skills. And, and that it's pretty nuanced too, because there's the culture of just the day-to-day interactions on the street, but then there's also just completely different ways that media work in different markets. And, and you got to learn both. And, and not only do you need to know it, but you probably had to coach up some executives and team members so that they would be aware as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that's right. I think the media is a really good example. And I think, um, you know, coming from England, it's, you know, as you know, the media are pretty ravenous here for a a story and uh, for a negative story as well, more than most parts of the world, I'd say there's a real kind of um, sensational culture on the the media front. Um, So you think again, you think that that becomes your norm and but then you go to other countries and actually, um, you know, the media is different, they might be exploring things different ways and, and less of a kind of, you know, tabloid angle with their stories so um so yeah you have to understand as well within countries that there's different types of media so whilst you know you might be cynically minded a journalist is looking out for a negative story that's not always the case there might be you know difference between broadsheets and tabloids in the uk where they might be looking for an in-depth feature-led story whereas in the tabloid they're looking for a quick headline perhaps without the context that's that's fair or justified so Definitely there are differences, um, but I think you only pick that the, there's no, to me, there's no, uh, there's no syllabus. There's no course that teaches you that. That is just vocational life experience. In terms of the cultural differences, it's very easy to do something, to take a misstep when you're working in these different international markets. What did you do to kind of learn what I need to do appropriately? And, and a, an example that always jumps out to me is in Asia, just the way you present your business card is so different than what we would do here in the US or even the UK. Yeah, absolutely. I think actually Asia is a really good example. So when I was in the Middle East for two years, I yeah did quite a bit, bit of business outside of tennis. Um, with, with the Asian market, so the Olympic Council of Asia, I did some work with for the uh, the Asian Games, so the, the Asian Olympics, if you like. And that was, yeah, it was just interesting in terms of, you know, the work I was doing. There was a lot of press conferences, a lot of kind of formality of a sort of roadshow press event across Asian countries. And that was, you know, the formality that goes of creating a ceremony was much more a big deal than in other countries where it might be a bit more informal. So just knowing that that is a kind of respected way of, um, you know, presenting something to the press, there's, you know, th- there's that. I think in you know again in dubai whilst it's become a kind of quite a westernized culture at the same time you're dealing with people from all over the world so there's you know there's a very kind of um i guess market in its infancy compared to a lot of countries um certainly from the sporting perspective you know 30 years ago it wasn't a sporting hotbed and it is now so things take longer that was my takeaway from dubai (laughs) patience was the name of the game You, you want stuff done overnight and whilst it's a country that um, surprises everyone with its can-do attitude. It's also ways of working take a long time. So you have to appreciate things are not as established as they are in the UK and US. And, um, you know, 
you're setting precedents every time you're working with a client and there's, you know, we're all learning things for the first time in that market. I think that's, that's the, the takeaway I have from it. And I learned a lot from that. You also mentioned the language and working in different regions, you're going to experience so many different languages and how do you have to modify what you're doing and whether it's going through an interpreter or getting things translated, there's a little bit of unease when suddenly you kind of lose that control over your message when you've worked so hard to craft it. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important point. Um, yeah, I think, you know, particularly when things are translated, you know, you'll see something and you'll, you'll think, hang on, that's maybe not my recollection of it. If you were the spokesperson as the media guy or if you were representing an executive or, you know, a senior member who's, who's the, the face of the organization and you think that's not my recollection of it. But then you've got to remember... There's, yeah, there's the interview, there's the audio of what's transcribed, and then there's the piece around it, the color, the context, and that's, of course, going to shape the story. And I think particularly in a foreign language, you're going to notice things are done slightly differently, again, because um, there might be differences in the way things are reported. And that's, you know, totally fair game. You can't, you, you can't impose, you know, your, your own view on how the piece should be written. I think you've got to respect people will have their agendas. Hopefully you can, as a, as a comms guy, you can try and without too much spin get your story across and, and shape the way it goes and get across the positive points. But I think I've always taken the view, um, yeah, not to try and impose too much on journalists because um, I just I just think it's it's not the right way to go about it and it, you know, it can backfire. So. What's your process then when you're going to be going to a new market and, and work in a new place, new culture, new language, whatever the case may be, what's your process to get up to speed as quickly as possible before making that trip? Um, I would suppose just absorbing as much as possible. So being being humble and as much as you kind of clock up the years of experience, never thinking um, you know everything because no one knows everything. I think just learning the local ways of working, speaking to a variety of people is important. You know, not just being in an echo chamber, speaking to people you think will, will say the type of things you want to hear and make it easier for you, but actually trying to get a diverse opinion range. Um, and, you know, taking a step back and then thinking, okay, for here, for this scenario right now, in this point of time, this is the way to work because this is these are the cards on the table. Um, that said, you bring in your experience and bring in your template of ways of working with that. And I think if you find a combination of what you know and what you just learned, um, that's, in my view, that's probably the best way to work. Um, so sapping as much as possible, researching, not not taking knee-jerk reactions, which is also tough when in the media world when it's all about now, now, now. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and trying to kind of take a measured approach, I think is, is really key. The unique challenge of being so international as well is sometimes you're dealing with people who are in completely opposite time zones. How did you manage that? Because you need to unplug, you need to stay fresh, yet it's always working hours somewhere. Yeah, uh, two things spring to mind. One is uh, WADA, which I'll tell you more about, I'm sure you're interested in that. Uh, but you know, actually that, just being in Canada, being in Montreal on the East Coast, only five hours, um, five hours behind the UK, but the UK was the um, you know, very hungry market for the doping scandals. So a lot of the bulk of the journalists' uh, questions would come to me as a as, as the press officer from um, from the UK. So I'd be getting up in Canada in the morning and it's lunchtime in the UK and my inbox would be full uh, on a very complicated, sensitive, tough topic to manage. Um, and I kind of, by the end of the day, I'd offload those emails and kind of, you know, back at you, get, <laughs> get, get your responses out, end of the day, you clear the decks, only to think, you know, next day it's going to be the same all over again. So it was a kind of, you know, you feel good by the end of the day because you got on top of it. 
but the next day was a whole whole new raft of problems. That was one where I thought the time zone really uh, was a challenge. And I suppose another one, so I, I worked um, as director of comms for the Commonwealth Games uh, Federation, so for the Commonwealth Games out in Australia back in 2018. Um, and that being being in Oz, a real sports-loving market. And then, you know, getting getting stuff, I guess, back to the UK and even back to Canada and other Commonwealth countries was, you know, it's a massive challenge because you're dealing with different time zones. You're thinking, you don't want this to miss. Okay, the next day's newspapers, that's that's a bit of an old school way of looking at it, but you don't want to miss deadlines. Otherwise, it, you might miss a whole 24 hours before, uh, before it's written about in the country. So I think just kind of trying to bear in mind, you know, what the story might be, which country it relates to, when you need to get that by, to them by. Um, and, you know, there's a lot to think about on your feet, as you know, at these events, and, and that's a big thing to navigate. You mentioned WADA. What is WADA? <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of, bit of complacency for you. Uh, in sport, there's a lot of acronyms, aren't there? And uh, we all think everyone knows, but no, they don't. Uh, in fact, I didn't know much about WADA before uh, before that opportunity came up. So, um, yeah, so I joined them back in 2013. It's the World Anti-Doping Agency, which will be familiar to a lot more people now than it, it was back then. Um, and, yeah, they're the international regulator for drug testing in sport, for doping in sport. Um, huge role they have. A very under-resourced, under-budgeted organization that has an impossible job to try and keep the playing field level. Um, you know, it creates a lot of opinion because people want there to be fairness in sport and you, it's, it's, you're never gonna, I, I think, you know, you get you quickly when you work for WADA, you get rid of the naivety that you're going to win this battle. It is about staying ahead if you can and staying level, if, you know, worst case scenario, but it's, um, you're never going to kind of rid, um, you know, society of cheats in any form of, um, society and, um, and in sport, you know, doping is, is one of the biggest, if not the biggest kind of breach of the rules. So, um, so yeah, it was a big, big job. Um, so I went out to Canada where their headquarters is to Montreal to uh, work as the head of media relations. Um, and yeah, certainly tell you more about it, but it was an interesting time to arrive. Yeah. And, and I've, I've heard it referred to that your tenure there, that, that four year chunk of time was one of the biggest sporting crises of the 21st century with the athletics and the Russian doping scandal. What did you have to endure to try to stay on top of that? Because it was a massive international story that had a lot of nuance to it. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things I learned at water is as much as the media see it as a big scandal, you know, the stories that come with it, you're there working for a regulator. So a lot of it is quite dry. It's about rule setting and it's about following the rules, adhering to them and being neutral and fair. It doesn't matter if they're a big sporting star or someone you've never heard of. Um, and so we were we were not prone to hyperbole. So the, the, one of the biggest sporting scandals of all time, yeah. I mean, that that's taken from, I've heard many journalists say that now. I think when I went into it, you were seeing it as, okay, this is my job. We've got something to do here. There's lots to learn. It's, it's a tough subject, um, but we're going through it on a day-to-day -day basis, trying to make it a better place for athletes in sport. Um, I suppose when I arrived, it was it was just shortly after actually um, Lance Armstrong had done his uh, you know semi mayor culpa to Oprah uh, on TV. Um, so cycling was the big the big issue in in sport then with doping, um, and it had a really troubled not just Lance but troubled era. You know that, that professional era was a really difficult time, and, and cycling caught the brunt end of the bad reputation. But that 
that swiftly moved on. I, and when I arrived, I thought that's going to be as bad as it gets, as challenging as it gets. But it, it quickly moved on to track and field athletics. Yeah. How naive was I? Um, <laughs> quickly moved on to track and field athletics and, and uh, the IAAF and, and Sebco steering the ship there and, and all the problems there. And, and that, that became about Russian athletics and the, and the sort of systematic doping that we all saw there. And that then moved on to, you know, we, we thought it couldn't get any, any bigger, then moved on to wider sport in Russia and, and breaches of the system and the, you know, test tubes through mouse holes and all the stuff you would have watched on Icarus. So it, it became, I guess, for everyone in that organization, it was, we're all doing our job and, you know, could this get any stranger day by day? It was, you know, it's, it's, whilst it's always an interesting job being at WADA, I think that era we knew, um, and I guess still there now, we knew this was something big and uh, WADA was kind of put on the map as the organization responsible for dealing with it. And, and there's kind of a lot to unpack in this. And, and I think the first thing I want to touch on is what you had mentioned earlier, of the dryness of what you're doing, the amount of technical and I would imagine legal input into anything you're publishing had to be immense. What was that situation like as you're trying to get this information out that had so much density? Yeah, it's no, that's really interesting. I, I, when I arrived, I talked earlier about um, absorbing as much information before making um, decisions. And, and that was certainly something I tried to do at WADA. I kind of, I knew, I think sports communications pretty well, but I certainly didn't know anti-doping. And so I was thrown in the deep end as a, you know, as a new industry, everyone is pretty new to anti-doping. Um, and so I took the view of, you know, WADA was very much an organization of, um, you know, multiple expert areas. So you had, you know, some of the top lawyers in, in sports law, you had some of the top medics, some of the top scientists, you had, um, you know, hopefully a good communications department, you had a great education and athlete awareness department to try and get the message out about clean sport and anti-doping. So you had a kind of a, a team of, of, t of experts, I guess. So my job was, yeah, when we got inquiries or proactively, if, if there was the time was to um, you know, go and absorb as much as possible from those departments, certainly from, I was in the science director's department a lot. Um, and then of course I'd go, the end of the road was the legal department because things had to be absolutely vetted before being, being sent out because of the, you know, the repercussions for athletes. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was a case of, you can't just quickly respond to something off the cuff. You had to absolutely make sure it was watertight, um, and go to great lengths to make sure it was accurate. Um, and you know, there's, there's also the kind of the side where you're dealing with several stakeholders so if it's a whilst WADA might be kind of at the, the top of the tree internationally you had the national anti-doping organization so in the states USADA a very well-known one uh, for, for obvious reasons in the cases it's taken on UK UK anti-doping etc so you're dealing with those organizations and your counterparts there to make sure you know the right person is taking the you know taking the inquiry at the right place um, and then you've got you know the international sports federations and it's a massively complex umbrella of sort of acronym organizations in that world and to to navigate the responses and and delve out the responsibilities of who should be answering what that's you know it's quite a learning curve actually and i think it's interesting because most of the time when wada or a doping concern comes up it is a crisis for someone but for wada you're just doing your yeah. business it's not your crisis and so it's probably an interesting tightrope to kind of be navigating yeah, and that's the point about the, the sort of the dryness. I mean, kind of what I tried to do during my time there was, um, yes, respond to the, you know, the media appropriately. That's absolutely paramount. But also it was to try and get ahead of it and actually um, 
demystify the topic of anti-doping because uh, I'm certainly not a scientist. I needed to understand it enough to be able to communicate it to the, the layman, the layperson in the street. Um, and my job, the best way I could do that was to sap as much information and try and distill it into something we could understand without dumbing it down into, you know, in, into kind of tabloid stories. You have to get the facts right, the ways of communicating it to, to people to make it a bit more engaging. So that was where I guess my job came in to try and make it, you know, make it a bit more eye-catching on social media and make it, I set up a, a series called Wada Talks, which is an interview series. And, and I thought, look, people don't just want to hear from the administrators and the rule makers. They want to hear from athletes who are the, the heart and soul of sport. And they want to hear from, you know, even an ethics pro professor, you know, the kind of value side of sport and why that's important. And is that a bit of an outdated theory in sport, in, you know, in, in 2020? So it's kind of trying to demystify it, bring it across to the masses in a way that didn't, um, didn't kind of um, play fast and loose with what is a really complicated topic. And that was hopefully a way to make it less dry. Um, it was my, my point of view. It certainly is a challenge. It's not the sexiest thing to talk about. And it's kind of, when it comes up, it's usually bad news. So that proactive approach, how important was that for you to pitch to your bosses? And then how successful was that to get that across to the media and, and in turn the general public? Yeah, uh, two really interesting things there. Yeah, one is to pitch it and get it across to internally. Absolutely, people are really on board with trying to, um, trying to take that approach because anyone that, you know, that joins anti-doping organizations and realize it's a, it's a steep learning curve to, to get up to speed with, you know, rules that are changing the whole time. So, um, so yeah, to, to be able to do it in a proactive way and try and make it a bit more media and, and public friendly, that was absolutely, um, you know, on board with, with the organization. Um, as for internally, it was absolutely, uh, you know, endorsed and, and, um, seen as a positive. If we can do that in addition to the react and responsive nature of, of inquiries from press and on individual doping issues, absolutely. As for how that sat with, yeah, the mainstream press, you know, it's not a, it's not a story to be talking about an education seminar where athletes are talking about why, why doping is not the right route, etc. So yeah, I'll be, I'll be honest, quickly learned that wasn't going to make mainstream news, but there were journalists that were receptive to kind of looking a bit more in depth at the system um, and, and how it works and whether it was taking the right steps to, to, to get on top of the, of, of the subject. Um, and so for that, yeah, there were times when you get features or kind of, um, writers who are looking at talking about the corporate side of water and, and understanding um you know the awareness programs the, the background that we're going into to get rid of this culture i guess so there's the day-to-day -day, the, the press inquiries then there's the the prevention side of okay what's the long-term goal it's it's to prevent doping in sport generations down the line if we can get there to do that it's about education and awareness so um it wasn't going to be a media topic but certainly you can um you can you can get some interest from from athletes in the public who want to understand the deeper than the, the individual scandals. That time at WADA is very unique, uh, but are there lessons from that unique situation that you think could apply to sports communication professionals, whether they're at a team, a league, university, whatever level they might be at? I think what I learned from that time is, however. However fraught and, uh, and challenging the situation, however tight the deadlines, however dramatic the story, um, yeah, from a personal point of view, keep your calm. Um, you know, the world's not going to cave in as much as it seems at the time as you've got immense pressure. Um, keep your calm, try and make rational decisions, speak to people. Uh, don't be afraid to put your hand up and think, hang on, I've made a mistake here. 
how do I correct this? As a person, I'm all about kind of solutions. We all make we all make mistakes, and I think it's quickly about how you react to them is the is the key. So um, yeah, I think it's about um, and that's something I've carried forward with me is uh, is again you're not going to know everything immediately. So try and um, try and yeah try and speak to as many people as possible and, and get yeah, and work out people's talents as well. So as a you know as a team, everyone brings to the table different skills, and I think um, trying to trying to pick up things from others that you don't have that's absolutely that's a skill in leadership. It's a skill in in working with colleagues, um, and I think that collaborative approach is really what I've tried to take with me. You mentioned earlier the Commonwealth Games, not an acronym in sport. However, as an American, what, what in the world are the Commonwealth Games? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, the Commonwealth Games, you might be hearing a bit more about it as uh, Britain forges its way uh, in the world outside the EU. But hey, um, we won't get into politics. But um, yeah, Commonwealth Games, uh, very historic sporting event, uh, been around... I'd say close to 100 years now, um, and it, it involves the Commonwealth countries of the world. So um, former countries of the British Empire, how outdated does, does that sound now? Um, so yeah, you've got Great Britain, you've got, um, uh, well, actually Great Britain is divided up into, into individual countries. So you've got England, Scotland, Wales, um, Northern Ireland, you've got Canada, Australia, New Zealand. So it's, it's really the kind of the English speaking countries across the world, but it's fascinating because you've got some of those huge countries, South Africa, et cetera, India, but then you've got, you know, this whole kind of array of tiny island states that you might not have even heard of that have very small populations of thousands of people. And, and that's the thing, the Commonwealth Games, which used to be hugely popular, and I think as a multi-sport event, second behind Olympics, but it has declined in recent years because people have questioned its relevance. Um, so the job there from a communications point of view is say, look, we're not going to rival with the Olympics. No one can do that. How can we show ourselves to be different and something that stands for something different? So it was all actually about um, inclusivity and, and kind of quite a progressive agenda. Some called it political, but it was very much about saying, what can this games do to help change the society it takes place in? So, you know, in Australia, it was very much about trying to engage the Aboriginal community and about Aboriginal rights. It was about, um, we had equal number of medals for men and women. Uh, we had, you know, a huge increase in the number of female referees for what are traditionally male sports and vice versa. So it was all about trying to um, say, look, this is how sport can be done and, and, and done in a way that includes all people. And that was, um, that was the mantra of the Commonwealth Games in 2018. And I think it, it definitely, certainly in the Commonwealth countries, it really cut across. Um, I was even pleased. Uh, one of my one of my one of the things I took away was we managed to even get into a U.S. publication, the New York Times, and I thought, good, we've we've done something right. There's some interest there, um, but it was it was it was fun, and I think it was the the point about the Commonwealth Games compared to the Olympics was, in the Olympics, you know, it is it is the top end of sport. The Commonwealth Games, yes, you have you know top top athletes, but they're playing um, or competing against athletes from really small countries that wouldn't make the Olympics. So you get that kind of David and Goliath, um, which is a bit more like the sport of old where people kind of, you see the human side of it because, um, because it's that, that mismatch and you get some surprises along the way. So. And, and what was your role? And I know that what you were doing, it was the first time they had hired someone in that role. So what was it like to navigate a new position? Yeah, the um, the no, it was, a, it was an interesting interesting period. It was um, the um, small organisation, unlike you know the International Olympic Committee, which is a huge organisation. Obviously, it's a huge event, but by proportion, they you know the IOC had many more staff to organise um, such a big scale event 
than the Commonwealth Games. Um, so it was a small team and very much kind of we, we worked well by, um, by leaning on the, the organizing committee set up in Australia, um, who was, you know, an extension of the team. They were on the ground to run the games in Australia. Um, and then working with, you know, it was fascinating because you're working with so many different bodies and stakeholders. So you had the, um, yeah, local organizing committee in Australia, you had the government in Queensland, you had the national government in Australia, you'd have national governments from the Commonwealth, you'd have the sports federations of those sports, you'd have the Commonwealth Games associations of those sports, so like the, you know, like the US Olympic Committee, but, but for, for Commonwealth Games equivalent. Um, and then, you know, to throw in the mix the eccentricity of the Commonwealth, you'd have, you know, other... Um, other aspects like you'd, you'd, you'd be working with the royal family who are, who are patrons of the games. So you'd have all these different stakeholders um, and it was a fascinating um, mix. But I think the great thing was you, you um, there was a real camaraderie because the, because the countries have a historical relationship. There was a rivalry. There's a kind of, um, yeah, a kind of rapport between the countries where they, they sort of knew each other. And there's a bit of, a bit of kind of banter, if you like, between them to, you know, uh, to kind of, um, vie off and, and, and win. Um, and that made it really interesting. So in terms of my role, yeah, it was to, um, it was to promote what the Commonwealth Games was about to try and make it stand out as something a bit different than other sports events and to, um, and to also, you know, try and show how, you know, sport can bring the Commonwealth together. So there's that slight society message as well. And for you, it was a bit of a sprint because you, you were only there for, four or five months from when you started to when the games actually took place, that had to be an incredible yeah. learning curve and just a, a full-on sprint. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a role that came into, yeah, about six months before the games. So the, the mandate was absolutely, um, you know, strategy um, that's in line with the, the, the Commonwealth sports strategy um, and bring it, you know, bring it into play. So getting all those federations and organizations on board with that strategy, everyone moving in the same direction. So we're all talking about the same thing. And, you know, as you know, through communications, the more people that are imparting that message, the more effective it will be. So, um, so that was, that was the role is really within that short space of time to get the message out loud and clear of what the games was about. Um, and then of course that changes a little bit at games time where it's much more operational, where it's, yeah, managing those daily press conferences that, you and I know way too much about, um, and rolling up your sleeves and making sure the press are looked after and, uh, and you've got happy customers there in the press office. Um, and you know, just kind of that operational role. So you go from strategy to not forgetting the strategy, but actually doing the doing. Um, so again, it's, um, you can never, I guess, be too precious to think, no, I, I don't need to do that. It's very much your role is anything and everything. You've also done some work within formula one, which is, uh, quite the international roadshow uh, every week or two weeks in a different country, sometimes a different continent uh, two weeks later. So that in itself is a fascinating way to work. But in terms of the communications piece, what are the biggest things that stand out to you from your time within Formula One? Um, F1, and it, so I, I worked in it, yeah, about, about 10 10 years ago and it's changed drastically in that time it was certainly it's still a very glamorous sport but i think you know 10 15 years ago it was seen as this super exclusive um yeah international road show um very glamorous very uh lots of money um and very kind of a very nouveau riche sport i guess um with no expense spared and the teams would yeah fly around you know uh, certainly 
business class and it was this massive road show where you're taking your Formula One motorhome to the paddock um, and, you know, this kind of cacophony of, of noise, people, energy, um, petrol. It was just this incredible experience. Uh, and I say that not as a petrol head at all, but certainly someone that learned about a very different sport. Um, and my job there was, I was working for one of the... Um, one of the F1 teams based in, based in England called what was then Lotus Renault, which is now Renault, Renault F1. Uh, and my job was, yeah, so senior press officers, I was working with the drivers, managing the driver PR, um, working between them and the sponsors with the sponsor appearances and making sure they were getting what they wanted out of their rights. Um, working with Formula One, the, the governing body, um, and working with the, you know, the team leadership, the engineers, the, the CEOs of the team, the, directs the team so it was a, a really interesting role working quite closely with people um and and trying to you know trying to obviously the the, the talking on the track is what helps the job easier if the team's performing but actually um again trying to show what the identity of the team was and how it was different to a ferrari or, or whatever it may be i think the interesting thing to, today is that f1 has become even more international under the new era of um yeah, American Chase, Chase Carey and, uh, and become much more commercially minded, much more modernized, engaging social media channels. And, and there's a, a race, obviously, in Austin. There's talk of a second one, I think, in Miami. And so it's becoming, prop, you know, something's not really international until it's uh, in North America as well. And it is very much becoming that sport. And it's got other motorsports to compete with, obviously, um, NASCAR, IndyCar. But I think it's on a good track. Very diverse experience that we've talked about so far. What are the universal truths that you think sports communications pros should know? Very good question. Um, I, I touched on it at the beginning, but never, um, well, always expect the unexpected or, or never, never be too complacent and too set in your ways to think um, you know it all because there will be some surprises thrown your way. It doesn't matter how many years you've got on the clock, I think. Um, you know, the phrase, nothing surprises me anymore is probably apt um, in that there'll be different ways of working because you're working with different cultures. But also, as we get older, we're working with different generations who, who think they know a better way of doing things. So you've got you've to try and be nimble um, while also hopefully kind of imparting your knowledge and experience in a, in a respectful way to those that are coming, coming up through the ranks. So um, I think, yeah, I think just being nimble, agile, um, flexible in how you work, um, but also, you know, mentoring as much as possible, trying to, as I say, impart that information and, and skills and, and know-how for others that want to get into the industry because it's, it's a really appealing, competitive industry to get into and it, no one falls into it really. Um, so you've got to work really hard, graft hard. Um, and I think, you know, the more you can pass that on to, to others trying to come through, the more helpful it is because we've all been there and, and put in the hours. Take me back there. When you were breaking through, when you were getting your first experiences and knocking on doors, what was your path to get into this industry? Um, well, I was, I was fortunate in that I um, have a sister and had a sister then that worked very much in tennis. So um, that certainly opened the door, but by no means is that, you know, do you walk through it? You've got to prove yourself. You've got to be willing. You've got to throw time at it voluntarily. Um, so my, yeah, my, Initially, I, as I mentioned, I wanted to be a sports journalist and then I wasn't sure about that was the route I wanted to take. I, I knew I wanted to work in sport, wanted to work in sports press offices. I loved the buzz of the event, uh, but I enjoyed writing. So kind of I moved down the communications and PR route where you can do a bit of writing and you can do that more event um, practical based work. Um, so that suited me better. But to begin with, it was very much, um, yeah, 
getting getting the hours in at the sports press offices. So I started at, um, in fact, I'll never forget it. I went straight from my uh, final A-level exam, which is uh, the exams we do in the UK. Um, when you're 18, straight from my final exam, I think it was the Wednesday of the first week of Wimbledon, I'd been offered the job in the press office um, with Sarah Clark and her team, I'm sure you remember them. And uh, and uh, luckily I, I still got the job even though I had to start three days in. Um, and I went straight from that final exam as a, a very young 18 year old into this Wimbledon press office atmosphere where I was desperate to get the experience and, and meet the journalists I'd been reading about and, and all the rest of it. And it was very much, that was the launch pad for me for, I did one Wimbledon, I wanted to go back and do the next year. And the next year I went and, you know, went and did the Queen, what was then the Stella Artois Championships in the, in the press office as a kind of runner as well. One of the guys with those walkie talkies going around. Um, and that was, uh, that was fun. And it, was a, it was a case of uh, building that up. And then I thought, okay, well, there's other events I can do as I become a student at university. So I then uh, went and did some more stuff in the summer. I did the F1 Grand Prix in, um, in Britain. Um, and, and then I, you know, when I was traveling one year, I, I did the Aussie Open. So it was a case of, you know, once you've got a few under your belt, you can do a bit more because you've got that experience on your, on your resume. Um, and that to me was, some of it was paid, some of it was voluntary, but I kind of knew in my head, this is the industry I want to work in. And I know everything I've heard from people to get there, you've got to, you've got to graft and build up that experience. So that was, that was what I did. And as you grow through it, both starting out, but now, you know, decade plus on, how much do you feel that you have camaraderie and can lean on colleagues and, and there's a network of people kind of, you know, all boats being risen by one tide type of atmosphere or is yeah. it cutthroat? Um, it, it is cutthroat. I think at the beginning, uh, people certainly have not sympathy, but um, they can empathize in terms of, um, you know, having been at that beginning stage themselves, especially if they're journalists where they've had to work their way up for years. Um, so there's, you know, there's a bit more leverage, I'd say, when you're young and out of school and people want to give you a chance um, because it is tough. It's really tough. Um, and But I would say that, you know, the, the more you carve your own way in it, particularly in today's media environment where journalists are having to do more and more things and, and be generalists as well as specialists, um, you know, the jobs that they might refer you for or, or, or introductions they might make, actually, you know, they need to be considering for themselves because they've got to, you know, market themselves. And I think that's a key part of the industry today is, um, you can be excellent at what you do, but you've constantly got to reinvent yourself, market yourself because the media landscape's changing. You know, journalists are having to be podcasters. They're having to be serial tweeters. They're, you know, having to know a lot very well. Um, so I think from that perspective, maybe people have to think of themselves a bit, even though they, they want to be generous with their time and, and experience. Uh, you actually kind of start, started to answer my next question already, but how has the media landscape changing changed what you do as a sports communicator? Uh, yeah, definitely changed. I think, um, yeah, when I was doing stuff 10, 15 years ago, it was very much about getting stuff for, for you know, tomorrow's newspapers um, and making sure, uh, making sure you got everything across within the deadline. Otherwise, again, you miss 24 hours, you might miss the story completely. Um, it's changed now to <laughs> there is no wrong time to get the information out there because it can be on social media instantly. It can be an online story immediately. Um, yeah, it can be on television immediately and you know, people blogging, blogging. So that has, that, that pressure has cha changed, you know, immensely. It's really, really tough to be a journalist and to be the information provider and the, the spokesperson, the communicator, because, um, 
you know, because it's a 24 hour news cycle. And that also brings its, brings its negatives, if I'm honest, not talking about sports specifically, but it brings this sense that there's always news, there's always something on. And then it also creates this kind of whirlwind of news where a lot of the time you think, is that really a newsworthy story? But people are filling those hours in the, in the, in the news cycle. And it creates this kind of, um, you know, certainly in the UK, a sort of spiral of tabloid culture where people are just receiving way too much information and they and it's difficult to tune out and that brings a whole lot of other you know societal challenges mental health etc so it's it's a tough it's it's a tough industry now to work in and uh yeah you've done some work on your own setting up your own consultancy how did you make that arrangement and, and begin down that path that was um so that was post commonwealth games and i thought right the games are done what do i what do i go on to now um and I, yeah, I always wanted to do my own thing. Um, and I thought whilst at the beginning of my career, it's certainly not, you know, not the time to do that. Hopefully now I've reached a stage where I've, I've got enough diverse experience to, um, and contacts and to, to be able to build something myself. So I, um, yeah, it really happened. I wouldn't say by accident, but I had after the Commonwealth games, I had a couple of, um, clients I was working with one was us anti-doping so carrying on in that field and another was in a kind of athlete rights um organization and i had that and it was filling up filling up my week which was great so i had had the next next project and i just thought let's formalize this so i then thought right well let's build this into a more formal consultancy so i set up a website and, and marketed um the services i could offer um and that's really what led to it and it was um you know it was very much working of connections initially and, and, and then referrals. And, um, it was word of mouth business, uh, which was interesting. And there was me thinking, okay, a lot of this I'm going to have to do digitally, but that is time consuming as you know. And, um, I think a lot of it initially I was relying on my, my network really. Are there ways that the consultancy can be advantageous to, uh, an organization as opposed to having just in-house? Yeah, I think, well, I think it's a really interesting question. It's difficult to answer as we're kind of, you know, coming out the end of the, the COVID, uh, certainly the first wave of COVID um, in a lot of countries worldwide, I think. Um, my view is that, yeah, internally, there's absolutely a need for, you know, whether it's selling events and, and governing bodies, press offices or communications directors. I think, I think things are going to be slightly different in the post-COVID world. And I don't have a crystal ball, but maybe, uh, maybe we're going to see people again needing to tap into um, external freelance consultancy more because they, they can't have the overheads of, of in, internal staff given the, you know, the cost cutting measures we're seeing because of COVID. Um, so I think maybe that is going to be certainly for the foreseeable, the, the, there's going to be more freelancers out there, more people having to be adept doing different things for different clients. Um, and I think the skills you bring, are, you know, internally you absolutely, and this is what I learned at WADA, having, having, you know, moved around more in my career than I imagined I would do in the early days. It was very much, you know, WADA has, um, you know, became institutionalized for a while where I, that was the only topic I really knew and absorbed um, because it was such a, a big chunky um, subject matter to get my teeth into. I needed that to be all my, you know, my time all consuming with that. So um, it was very much, and that's the in-house position is learning everything you can about that, learning the ways of the organization, learning you become, as I say, institutionalized, whereas as a, um, and that can be very good. But as a freelancer, you have that fresh perspective. You're looking at things differently. You're comparing it to other client work. And hopefully that's the value you can add as an external person. So I think there's, there's merits with both. And then as that freelancer who is consulting with multiple organizations, how do you keep yourself organized to have the different issues, the different clients, everybody's got different needs. 
to balance all that and, and make sure everybody's getting the attention they need. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's definitely a challenge. Um, I think being an organized person, you've got to structure up your week as you know, you've got contracted hours or days and you've got to start with that. Okay, this amount of time with this client, this amount of time with this client. Um, but of course, those demands will come, you know, particularly if you're working on a retained basis, where it's just X number of hours or days a month, these things will come at the last minute. And, and a client will certainly and rightly expect you to drop everything because they've got an immediate thing they need doing the next day. And you've got to be as you know, as can do and as positive in your response as you can, whilst also respecting you've got to juggle other client work. So it is difficult. And that's where, you know, certainly if you've had the luxury of um, having that enough, enough work with you, you have to bring in a broader team that you can train up to, to manage that and help you. And that's when you become less a one man band and more business is when you have to bring in others who are representing your own brand. Um, so it is, it is a difficult thing, but I think that's one of the things any freelancers will have to navigate. On top of that, then you're trying to grow your business and see if you can bring on other people and develop that brand. And part of that is the self-promotion. And you talked a little bit about developing that digital presence or that networking. And how do you prioritize that within that freelance consultancy work? Yeah, it's, um, it's again, there's only, only so many hours in the day, right? And you're, um, you're trying to absolutely the priority is the client work because you're contracted to do that that's number one but then you've got to always think of that rainy day when that might dry up or if it's an event that event has passed for another 12 months um so what comes next and that that's the that's the quandary as as a freelancer is your um yeah you are very much you don't have that buffer of an organization you're having to look after your workload and your income in that way so yeah you're you know you're having to I guess, you know, market yourself as much, you know, for me, it was carving aside enough hours a day where I could market, you know, do myself marketing. So um, whilst I'm, I guess we'll come onto it, social media, whilst I did a limited amount of that, I certainly, one of the best ways was um, to, to get across kind of, you know, topics I felt I knew a bit about, was passionate about in, in the B2B press where, you're, again, you're in front of the front of the type of organizations you want to be working with. So blogs or opinion pieces in those in those sports business press. I thought that was a really good way of, um, you know, showing showing the type of thing I could do and, and my knowledge in the in the sphere. Um, I did that more than social media, but I'd say that some would market themselves through through Twitter or whatever it may be. So yeah, it is a big um, part, and you can't let it drop for one minute really because because um, you've got to be you know you don't want to be out of sight and out of mind. Were there any of those blogger opinion pieces that were particularly successful? Uh, yeah, certainly, actually. And funnily enough, it's always, um, I did a, I've done a couple on, on kind of what I see as a kind of rising athlete movement, athlete rights, athletes speaking up more and more. And I think certainly in the US, it's been more prominent for years. So maybe it's less of a noticeable shift, but I think in the Olympic sports world, it's become a bigger a bigger deal in the last few years of athletes um, speaking up for how they want to see their sport run or, or particular societal societal issues. And I, you know, I think it's a welcome thing. It's democratic. Um, but I did a, you know, I did a, I did a blog on it and I yeah, became quite passionate about it. I think it's a really important thing for athletes to have a say in their sport. Um, but of course, when you're going into that, going into that ground, you think, hang on, is this getting political? And, you know, some people won't, won't have the same point of view. So do you want to be writing about these topics? But yeah, the, the, to answer your question, the athlete rights one was, uh, I did a, first one probably a couple of years ago uh, and that's very successful and as well received and and it's on a topic that yeah it's you know people will have an opinion on either way um, so I think once you go into that sphere um, yeah you're in, there will be people that have a different view than you but I think to make it interesting you've got to 
kind of narrow narrow colors to the mast and, and have an opinion that's not necessarily kind of a neutral one for people to to engage with it I'm going to shift gears now to the set pieces. I close each of the episodes with these six questions and I did tip you off to them. So I know you're prepared. Uh, (laughs) What are podcasts or newsletters that you're consuming to help yourself stay informed, stay educated? Well, podcast is not a, not a sports one. It's a big favorite of mine. It's a very popular show in in the UK. It's called uh, BBC desert Island discs. And it's a show that, um, is uh yeah on bbc radio and it it is where they interview a, a famous guest um from a particular profession who talks about their life and life and times um and throughout it's uh, interwoven at their favorite eight tracks that they would take to a desert island if they were cast off by themselves and so it's a really fascinating insight into um actually it's a really fascinating it's you know it's in-depth it's kind of old-fashioned in that way it's not it's not sound bitey it's a really kind of a good 30 minutes look at someone's lives, all the ups and downs, all the nuances, the gray areas. So I think it's a really nice kind of measured way of looking at an individual rather than the little snippets we hear about people in the, in the media today. And it's a great listen. And there's people from all walks of life and, um, and you learn, you learn something new. Speaking of social media, who are your most valuable files? The posts you don't want to be missing. Well, so social media is an interesting one. I've kind of gone on and off because of um, time constraints or um, or not feeling it was needed in, in the role I was doing. Um, I recently went on again, although I'm not using it as regularly as I should. But I think um, certainly a time when I used it, um, you know, beneficially was um, during the WADA days when um, you might want to draw attention to a statement that WADA put out. But, you know, journalists you're dealing with know you individually. So if they see your, your Twitter and you're, you're, you're linking to it, they're quicker to find the post, they're quicker to find the information and engage with the story. So um, that was a tool, you know, Twitter I certainly used during during the water time um, pretty regularly. Um, and yeah, it was about being linked in with the, the key international sports news journalists. So that, um, and this is where you start name dropping, right? But the, the, the kind of, um, you know, the New York, New York Times sports, uh, sports guys, you know, Rebecca Ruiz is of this world, who were the, the ones breaking the kind of Russia story. And it was key, about keeping in with them and, um, and making sure they were across the information. Because ultimately, if they're following the right information, they're going to be producing more accurate stories and there's, you know, you have a better relationship and it's fairer to, to all concerned. So I think it's important to, to keep that relationship good and to, to follow the journalists. And, and likewise, they want to, they want to, um, you know, see, see what's going on at, at WADA or the organization you're working for. So that's, that's really important. What are some reading recommendations Some books to you tell people to check out? Well, I've re- recently read one. I, I kind of flip between fiction and nonfiction books. If I read too many autobiographies, I don't have enough stimulation and creativity and too many, uh, too many novels. And I, I kind of want to get back into the real world. So I, um, a recent book I read was called The Miracle Morning, uh, which is a, a bestseller uh, and uh, is uh, a very simple book about how you can, in today's crazy world, um, uh, and if you can get up early enough, get up before the sun rises and having an hour to yourself of the day that sets you up in an amazing way. And it's all about carving up that hour. It doesn't matter if you've got kids or uh, have a crazy, crazy work situation. We've got to get up early. Anyway, you get up that hour extra um, early in the morning and you spend 20 minutes reading, you spend 20 minutes doing exercise, you spend 20 minutes meditating, whatever it may be, just simple things without your devices there um, to set you up for the day. And it's a really interesting way of explaining 
despite you might think, you know, you're going to be more tired because you've started the day earlier, actually you'll feel so refreshed and at ease with the kind of the world around you that you can tackle anything. Um, and are I'm you trying doing to, that now? Well, I've, I've kind of unofficially incorporated it. I'll do a bit of exercise <laughs> one morning. I might do a little uh, kind of uh, mindfulness another morning. I might read a bit of book. Um, I haven't got to the point yet where I spend the full hour, but it's a, it's a good start. And uh, yeah, and I guess other, other, well, other books, there's many, uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, there's a, a, it's a classic uh, fiction book, um, well known in the UK, certainly by, by an author called Jeffrey Archer, who is a politician and an author amongst other things. Um, and he wrote a book called uh, Cain and Abel, which is a, yeah, a classic of um, many of his stories um, are about kind of two characters from different walks of life that eventually meet by, um, by their own life paths. And it's a really kind of one of those moving stories um, sort of from, you know, from rags to riches type of thing. Uh, and it's a, a book I've read many times and, and continue to love. I'm going to throw a little curveball at you here. I'll warn you now. I'm going to start with TV. What are you streaming? Oh, well, in the, in the last week, I started watching uh, Modern Life, it is called, um, which is a, a nice uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, there's a nice little plug for a tennis broadcast there. <laughs> Amazon Prime series um, about uh, which serializes and, and slightly fictionizes um, stories taken from New York Times columns. So they're nice little heartwarming, uh, soppy stories about, um, about, you know, people's lives in New York and, um, and they've been made into TV and that's great. On a very different note, I've, uh, I love, uh, there's a, a new channel on, on Sky in the UK it's called Sky Documentaries. I love documentaries about interesting figures in history and uh, been watching uh, a few different ones, sports ones, but I've also been watching the, the Bill Clinton, uh, Clinton affair, which is fascinating. So, um, yeah, it's a, a varied, um, varied TV taste I have. And I'm throwing the change up here because I know you, you're a music guy. So what's some of the music that's hot for you right now? God, music. Um, I, uh, God, I listen, to, uh, listen to all sorts of stuff. Um, I will listen to, um, I guess, a lot of, um, yeah, kind of singer-songwriter stuff. So you're kind of, Tom O'Dell's, James Bay's, if they if they've made their way stateside, um, Jason Mraz, who you'll certainly know, that kind of stuff. So pretty light, I don't know if I call it melodic rock even, but pretty light singer songwriter stuff. Um, and then I I've always had a love for um, yeah '90s kind of Britpop era music. So your Oasis, Blur, those that kind of great era of music we had over here in um, 20, 20, 30 years ago. So I've always uh, I grew up with that, and it's never far away from my Spotify playlist. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Um, I guess uh, I loved all sport. I think probably the best memory, certainly I've uh, got many memories of Wimbledon um, growing up. I was a big, um, big Goran Ivanisevic fan. And so they weren't good memories. There were three final losses until he eventually won it. But I, th I think the best memory I've got is probably Euro 96, the um, football or soccer, as you guys call it, uh, soccer tournament in, in England um, 24 years ago now. And it was an amazing time. It was a great, as I've just mentioned, a great music era in the in the UK. So there was that kind of cultural revolution, I guess, going on. First time England had hosted a, a football event for years and years, and it was the best team we'd had since we won the World Cup in probably in 66. And we got to the semi-finals. It was a carnival atmosphere over here. We lost, as we always do, on penalties to the Germans, our, our rivals. And, um, and it was a great time to be um, a young teen enjoying... 
um, enjoying a sports event in their own backyard and it just wasn't the right outcome. But it's funny, all these years later and they have these kind of um, repeat documentaries on it and it was seen as this kind of cultural, um, you know, cultural moment in British history, even though it wasn't the right, the right ending. Lastly, do you collect your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Well, it's funny, funny you mention this actually. Um, I, uh, I do have many credentials and when I, uh, when I agreed to do this podcast, it got me thinking, oh, I really need to dig those out. Um, I fully know that my wife wouldn't let me have them anywhere on our wall. So uh, they're currently sitting in a storage box um, sitting in a storage box in the uh, in the garage, and I uh, I'd love to do something with them. And I've always thought, how can you creatively present these in a way that gets past the wife? So, <laughs> um, but for now, they they haven't they haven't made it out of the garage. But I might um, I might see if I can float that. <laughs> well, if you find if you find that solution, I suspect you're not the only one with that question of how to best present those. So let us know. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, oh, Pete, I, I'll mention, uh, mention something as well, which I found interesting is um, listening back on your previous episodes. Um, a couple of episodes ago, you had, uh, had Cara Banks, I think, on, which was, which was a really interesting uh, insight, actually. Cara, well, we all go back to the same, same time working in tennis, I guess, but, um, and Cara probably won't remember this, but we said years ago, we, we joked when we both wanted to work in the media, we said, oh, in 20 years' time, we'll be hosting a sports TV show together. And whilst, you know, we're not doing that and she's doing very well on, on TV, um, here I am on your podcast and, uh, and it's been really interesting actually to see how her career has developed and, and to hear her podcast. Um, so if she's listening, uh, many congrats for the way she's doing over in Florida. Yeah, she certainly is enjoying it and uh, it's a, a great situation there with the Golf Channel and I think she's really doing very well with it. And obviously you're doing quite well with everything that you've had through your career as well. So I appreciate you taking the time to share some of that with us today. Uh, pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Ben. Nothing makes me feel old more than hearing Ben talk about bands like Oasis being around for 30 years. Holy cow. Really appreciate Ben's insights, a great deal of experience and, and some great lessons from Ben. Thanks again to him for his time and for you for joining us on Credentials Only. Please take a moment to leave a review wherever you are listening. And if you liked it, tell a friend. Don't forget, you can find more information on what we discussed in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. And while you're there, submit your email address so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Thanks to Mike Miche for editing this and every episode. Credentials Only is a Holter Media production. <laughs>